Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to come back together to enjoy this Bible study. Um, thank you for this comfortable space. Uh, thank you for multiple options. God, I just ask that you would be with us tonight as we dig into your word and try to understand you a little bit better. God, help us to walk away learning more about you, learning about your people, uh, and with an extra love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the book of First Samuel. If you've noticed, there's been a whole lot of transition happening. Once you get through the first five books of Moses, you know, the first five books, the Torah, they cover Moses and they cover Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the beginning of the Israelite people. And they cover a pretty static period of time once you get to Exodus, between Exodus to Numbers, you're really dealing with them in the desert and it stays kind of focused on this intimate group of people, uh, a similar generation. But once you move on past the book of Numbers, you get into Joshua and then it's conquering the land and settling the land. And then you get into Judges and Ruth and it's the time that they're in the land without a king. And now you're in the book of First Samuel, which represents the transition from the judges to the kings, to the, to the monarch. So it's like transition after transition after transition. Um, and once you get into the kings, then you're dealing with 575 years of Israel's history under the, the monarchies. And First Samuel, in particular, switches from the final judge to the first king of Israel. And this mainly focuses on Samuel and Saul, we get introduced to the end of Eli uh, and the beginning of David's story in the book of First Samuel. But this will mostly focus on Samuel and Saul for the most part. The, be the first few chapters, which we're going to be dealing with today, are specifically about Samuel's call to the ministry. And it starts out before he's born. So chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, uh, an, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other was Panina. Panina had children and Hannah had no children. So... What we get invited into here is Samuel's father and mother. Elkanah is married to two women. One of them is barren. She's had no children, uh, which means that likely Hannah was his first wife and she was unable to bear children. And in this culture, it was very, very important to be able to pass on your family name. So he marries Peninnah and she has children. And you see a jealousy between these two women, very similar to Rachel and Leah, if you look back to what Genesis was like. Now, this man went up to his went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And remember, Shiloh is now the place where the tabernacle is resting until David takes Jerusalem. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion 
for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So again, something you see similar to Rachel and Leah. Elkanah loves Hannah more, just like um, Jacob loved Rachel more, but Leah was able to bear children. Hannah is unable to bear children, but Elkanah gives her a double portion of the food. And interesting is what's happening in this practice is this food is from a fellowship offering. So when they present an offering to God and they bring food to the altar, the Lord burns up some of the food, some of the food goes to the priests, and then the rest of it goes to the family. So it's like sharing a meal with God. And Elkanah is presenting a double portion to Hannah because he loves her. So just to get a little insight of what this means and what he's doing for Hannah, his wife that he loves. And it says, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so now you see the, the bickering and the bitterness. And so it was year by year when the Lord went up to the house of the Lord, or when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So even though Hannah gets this beautiful gift from Elkanah, this double portion of a fellowship offering of the Lord, she's so upset that she doesn't eat. Now we get a glimpse into what Hannah's feeling. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? We see the, the relationship here in this marriage that's broken by polygamy and the bickering that's going on. And Hannah just is grieved in her heart because she can't have a kid. And Elkanah has satisfied that desire through a second wife. But then he looks at Hannah and says, aren't I good enough for you? Do you see the hypocrisy in what Elkanah is saying? I have satisfied my desire for children through another wife. But with, so you weren't enough for me, but aren't, aren't I enough for you? Um, so yeah, Elkanah, good job. That's real romantic, buddy. So Hannah arose and after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. So now we see the high priest is there. And Hannah was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the attention of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall, be, uh, shall come upon his head. So she is offering to God, if you would just give me a son, I will dedicate him to you and I'll... I'll Give him the Nazarite vow. If you remember when we were in Judges, Sam Samson had the Nazarite vow. Same thing. She's saying, I will dedicate this, this child to you if you just would bless me with a son. And then verse 12, and it happened. As she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart only, but o only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. So what's happening is Hannah is distraught and she's so just brokenhearted over this not being able to have a child. She's praying to God, but she's praying silently, but her lips are moving because she just can't contain it within herself. And the high priest looks at her and says, why are you drunk? But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, the God of Israel, grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So basically, once the high priest hears the story, he basically says, I really hope God grants your request. Now, the next section, we see the answer to this prayer. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have heard, because I have asked for him from the Lord. So Samuel in Hebrew would be Shmuel, and it means God has heard, or God has answered, or God hears. And so basically she's naming her son. You know how we've talked about in, in biblical times, you would give a name to your child based on either circumstances surrounding their birth or the hope that you would have for them. In this case, it's, it's both. Hannah prayed for this child that she would dedicate to God, and that prayer was answered. And so every time she calls him by his name, She's remembering that God answered her prayer, but she's also dedicating him to the Lord. So it's both for Hannah. Now, the interesting thing about Samuel, when we started this chapter, it gives some indication of Elkanah and his background and his family background. In Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 6, you see that Elkanah is from the line of Levi. So Samuel is born into the line of priesthood. This will be important to the rest of the story. Now, the man, Elkanah, and all his house wept up to offer to the Lord the, the yearly sacrifice and his vow, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And so I find this little section funny because Elkanah heard the prayer. He understands the heart of his wife. And he says, are you going to come with me to, to off, you know, bring offerings to the Lord? Are you going to bring our son and dedicate him at the temple um, or at the tabernacle? And Hannah basically says, it's not time yet. I need to wean him first and then we'll go and he'll, he'll remain at the tabernacle forever. Uh, and Elkanah's response is, whatever you say, dear, which is, as a husband, I've learned the correct response. <laughs> so when she weaned him, she took him up with her uh, with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and threw uh, and, and brought the child to, to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood before you here. Praying to the Lord for this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. The beginning of the chapter starts with this heartache and this just brokenness in Hannah's heart, her competition with Penina uh, or Penina. Her, she's barren in the the chapter ends with Hannah's rejoicing, her worship of God and her dedicating 
her son to the Lord and giving him over to the work of God at the tabernacle. He is to stay at the tabernacle to serve God, which he can do because he's a Levite. He's a priest. It's interesting how they handled their children. Now, Hannah and Elkanah, Elkanah had a child finally with the woman he really loved. Much like Joseph was the firstborn of of Rachel's with Jacob, really loved this kid, but they get sent off early. Now, Jacob didn't have anything to do with Joseph, but this time they voluntarily give him over to the the service at the at the tabernacle as a young boy. And I think there's a little bit of a lesson in here, and this is probably more for me than for you at this point, but in parenting, right, the goal should be to get our children to live the lives that serve God. And I think oftentimes in this culture, we pursue so many social things and worldly things and get involved in so many things that have nothing to do with God. And then our kids don't end up at youth group or at church because they're in soccer or whatever. And I think sometimes it might be nice to take a, a look at what these parents did because they were so focused on the next generation, which, I mean, that's my job here is to focus on the next generation. So I take that to heart that it is, it's important to impress the word of God onto the next generation and have, have them understand what it means to serve him. And so Hannah is now in a state of worship, and this is her prayer. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn, which horn is a symbol of strength or power. My horn is exalted to the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor there is any rock like your God. Talk no, no more. So very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. I really like that verse in particular, because what Hannah is really saying is, there's nobody like God. There's, there's nothing like him. He is the rock. He is the strength. He's the foundation. And I and everyone should have no arrogance or pride before him. When you see the power of God, when you know who God is, the only correct response is humility. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. So she brings up this idea again that our strength or our might of men before God is, is nothing. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has borne many children has become feeble. Now, she's only had one kid. Why does she say even the barren has borne seven? Because seven is the number for completeness. She's seeing the complete answer of God, the fulfillment of God's promise. So she's using a euphemism. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and, and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. And now, So she's saying he has power and authority over all the things of the earth, over death and life, over the grave over what makes poor and rich, what brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be in silent darkness for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so she is just demonstrating this massive humility and complete understanding of who God is. She looks up and she sees God in all of his glory and as big as he is. And after this, after her prayer, you know, the next verse is, Then Elkanah went to his house in Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So you have this conclusion to this chapter. Nice little sum up, which is why there's a chapter break there. But after this exalted praise, the next section starts this way, and it's a stark contrast. It says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom when with the people was that any man who offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come home or would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came here. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priests, for he will not take the boiled meat from you, but raw. So, it starts out after this great praise. Now you see the kids who are in the ministry. The sons of Eli, the high priest. The children who are born into the ministry. They're born into the, into the faith. And they're serving in the faith. But here's what they do. They do everything corrupted. They take from the fat before it's burned which was supposed to be burned on the altar. They take meat that's raw before it's burned, and they take it themselves, and they take it home, and they're basically robbing the people from their sacrifices. They're just taking for themselves and living in excess. And so they're breaking God's law. They're not following the sacrifices according to the letter of the law. They're taking for themselves, and they're taking advantage of the people. And they're not showing humility before God in the way that the sacrifices are supposed to be done. And so, verse 16, And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. So, they're, they're like mob style. right? They're really corrupt. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, uh, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. So even as a child, Samuel is serving in the ministry as a young child, and he's wearing priestly garments. And this next thing is really sweet. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So Hannah didn't forget Samuel. And every year she would make him a new robe as he grew to help serve in the priesthood as a young child. She's still participating and encouraging him to pursue God, to pursue the God that gave him to her. And she's still thinking about him. It's just a really sweet, sweet idea. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from the woman for the loan that was given uh, to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So now Hannah's been blessed with multiple children. God has really, as she has been faithful, God has kept his promise. And he's given her even more because she kept her promise to him. And Samuel 
with her love for him and continuing to encourage him in the priesthood, he continues to grow in the Lord. So he's maturing in his faith. Now, Eli was very old. I really love that this happens with the biblical characters. Their description just at one point says they're really old. Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Whoa, new information here. Not only are they corrupt with the meat and the sacrifices, turns out there's also women who are serving at the tabernacle, and Eli's sons are taking advantage of them sexually. Um, at the tabernacle, at the place where worship is supposed to happen. So they are really desecrating the temple, or the, the tabernacle. They're really messed up. So Eli, this is what he says. He says, why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in the statue in favor of both in favor both with the Lord and men. Which, by the way, that's a that's a parallel. Um, growing in favor with men and with God is something that's also said about Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, and let me explain why that's really interesting. Because Samuel is the last judge of Israel. So he rules and reigns as judge in Israel. He's a priest. He becomes the high priest after Eli. And he's a prophet. So he fills multiple roles, which also looks to be a type of, or a picture or foreshadowing of the type of ministry that Jesus would have, fulfilling multiple roles as the high priest, the sacrifice. He is the judge and the king, and he does all sorts of stuff. But... If we just back up for a second, Eli, all Eli does, now he's he's found out about them taking from the sacrifices, not giving God everything he's owed, taking from the people, taking advantage of the people, and now he's heard about them taking advantage of women at the temple, or at the tabernacle. Sorry, I keep doing that. And all he does is say, why do you do this? You know it's wrong. Eli is the high priest. He can remove them from the priesthood. He can remove them and stop them from doing what they're doing and get them out of there. He doesn't. He chooses his family over God in this situation. It doesn't seem like it when you're reading it, but he's the one with authority. He's the high priest, and he doesn't remove them. And he allows them to keep doing these things to God, and he is the high priest, which is a representation of ultimately Christ. And so he's allowing the symbols of the Almighty God to be desecrated, right? Which is horrible. And this, to me, is also a picture of what sin is. Now, I talk about this occasionally, so just real quick. In Genesis, in the beginning, we find out that we are created in the image of God. So we are God's representation on earth. We are supposed to be an imager of him, represent him, be his ambassadors on earth as we get dominion over the earth. What does sin do? Sin tarnishes the image that we are supposed to bear. And so now we are representative of, representatives of God with a stain. And that is what, why we need redemption. That is why we need cleansing. That's why sin is red as crimson, but Christ makes it white as snow. But now they're desecrating the symbols that really represent God dwelling with men. The priesthood and the tabernacle. 
and Eli, the one who's in control, does nothing about it. So I just, I'm setting this up so you understand what's happening next. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord says, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father uh, when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, uh, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear the ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice, my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? So God is saying, why are you letting all of this happen? Why are you choosing your sons over me? To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings to, of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm, the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever, but any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in one day... They shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what's in my heart and my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in, uh, in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So, there is prophecy happening here. God is talking about all kinds of stuff that's going to go down. He says, Hophni and Phinehas, they're going to die in the same day. You're going to see that happen. Um, you're going to be removed. And I'm going to raise up a new priest, which is Samuel. And now he's also talking about things being taken away from the dwelling place, which is likely a reference to the Ark of the Covenant being removed uh, from Shiloh, which we'll see next week. So all kinds of stuff has come down on Eli. God is punishing him because... Eli in his position was not faithful to God and he chose his sons over God. He did not remove them from the priesthood. He could have still loved his sons, but removed them from desecrating the tabernacle and still served God rightly, but he chose not to do it. And so then this next verse is something, if you have a way to underline this or remember to do this, when you get a chance, highlight this. This is a verse that I think is incredibly powerful. Chapter three, verse one. Now the boy... Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Now the book of Judges ends with understanding this time period in history of Israel's history. It says this, In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Talking about the evil that existed at the time of the Judges. Because people just sought after whatever they felt was right. You know, it's similar to what we hear today. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. You know, it's my truth instead of actual objective morality that God has set for us in stone in his word. And so he says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. I have to be honest, right? This makes me think of today. I have heard from many of you 
that you have learned things you've never heard before in all of your years of being a Christian. Why? Because doctrinal truth has not been taught for a very long time. We have relied on slogans and motivational speeches and sort of self-help or biblical principles of how to live your life according to the scriptures, how to handle your money, um, what it means to take care of your neighbor. But we haven't really talked about the authority of scripture. And God's word has lost some authority in this culture. And this is what it makes me think of. Verse 2. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of the God was, while Samuel was lying down, the Lord called Samuel, and he answered. He said, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. He said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And he went to lay down. So they're going to sleep. They're laying down. Samuel closes his eyes. He's a He's a boy, probably preteen, teenage years at this point. He lays down, and he hears someone say, call to him. So he runs to Eli, thinking, you're the only person who's here. It must be you. And Eli says, no, just go lay down. It's not me. So then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose, went to Eli, and said, here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. This is powerful. Okay. Samuel has been called directly. He's heard the voice of God multiple times. But God's word has not yet been revealed to him. He's been serving in the ministry for years at this point, since he was a little kid. He's been serving in the ministry. He's been doing God's work. He's been working through the sacrifices and doing the things that God has asked him to do. He's He lives with the high priest who should who's been teaching him all of these things and he hears God's voice and he doesn't know what to do with it because God has, he hasn't been revealed yet. Right. I, I know that I've dealt with this a lot in culture. I've dealt with a lot of people who have said, yes, I'm a Christian. I was baptized as a baby. Do you have, do you know, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you, do you know, like, what do you know about him? What, how has it affected your life? Well, my parents went to church, so I must be a Christian. Or, I, you know, I go to church on Christmas. You know, or I go to church on Sundays, so I did the thing. I checked the box, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. You know, I hear these sort of cultural things. So Samuel fits into that description right now. He's doing all of the right things, all the things you're supposed to do to be a religious person. But God hasn't yet revealed himself to him. And so this is the moment, right? This is, this is Samuel's Damascus moment. Close to like when, when Paul was on the road to Damascus. Paul, who also was a fervent servant of the Lord, right? He was a, a Pharisee who knew the law inside and out. But God finally revealed the truth to him, and his eyes were opened on the road to Damascus. This is the moment for, for Samuel. And so the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. So Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went to lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and, call, and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel heard uh, and answered, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears uh, 
it will tingle. So Eli instructs him. He says, this is God calling out to you. When you hear God calling out to you, respond. Ask him, what do you want? What do you want? Tell me what you need. I'm your servant. I'm here. I'm ready for you. And so Samuel gets the invitation from God again. So God will call out to us. God will give us the invitation. What do we do with the invitation? And that's the question. Paul responded. He did what God asked him to do. He went and sought out the apostles to be healed from his blindness. And he pursued Christ the rest of his life. Samuel did what Eli instructed him to do. He said, God, what can I do for you? I'm your servant. I'm here. But God will call out. What is the response? And so that's the part that's on us. God has invited us. What is our response? What are we going to do to serve him? And God says, I'm going to do something in Israel. And everyone who hears it, their ears will tingle. Or the hair on the back of their necks are going to rise. rise. Something incredible is going to go down because of what God is going to do. In that day, I will perform against Eli and all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which knows uh, he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Eli and his sons, they didn't sin against themselves. They didn't sin against someone else. They actually desecrated the, the image, the portrayal of God on earth, the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And so there's nothing in the law that can help them. And God is saying, it's too bad for them. Eli should have known better. So that's what God's going to do. That's what's going to raise the hair on the back of your neck. And now you see Samuel's response. Samuel lay down until morning and opened the door of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Here's the deal. Sometimes when God tells us what he's going to do, it's scary to follow through on what he wants us to do. It's not always easy. But what does Samuel do? Because we can learn from him. Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please don't hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. So Samuel's response, he doesn't want to do it. It's not easy. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to share what God has said, right? It's not always easy to share your faith. It's not easy to talk to people who you think are going to reject you. It's not easy to give news that people don't want to hear. But Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, this is interesting. Eli, after this judgment, his humility, he says, he doesn't get upset. He doesn't say that's not fair. Right? This is someone who understands if God is who he says he is, if God is real, if God is the authority, I have no right to tell him that he's wrong. All he does is say, let him do what seems good to him. He is the one who understands and is able to judge. And so he doesn't argue. He just accepts God's word. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
So what happens after this, Samuel followed through. He did what was hard. He told the truth. He said what God's word was telling him to do. And this now becomes the theme of the rest of his life. He stands up for God when no one else will. And Samuel grows in his faith. Uh, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. That means whatever Samuel said, you knew it was going to come to be because Samuel was a legitimate prophet. And he's the, there have been prophets up to this point, but he's the first prophet of the time of the kings. He's the first of many. In fact, uh, he's mentioned by Jeremiah. You know, there are really famous prophets in the Bible, um, but there are some that are held with higher esteem. And Jeremiah even, in uh, Jeremiah 15, 1, it says, The Lord said to me, even if Moses and, and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable, to favorable towards this people. So Jeremiah is talking about when the Israelites are about to get conquered by Babylon. And he's saying, not even if Moses and Samuel were pleading their case, would I change my mind. But Samuel in this moment with Jeremiah is getting paralleled with Moses. Like Moses is the top of the list for the prophets, right? Uh, you think also maybe Elijah Right, but Elijah hasn't happened yet. Uh, but it's amazing that how how far Samuel was elevated in this culture because of what he did. And everything he said came to be because God was with him. And Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So how did God reveal himself? by his word. This is the prime tool we have to share with people who God is, the word of God. That is how God revealed himself to Samuel, and Samuel did the difficult thing by sharing it, by doing what he was supposed to do, by doing what God called him to do. And now he's established as a prophet and as the high priest and as the final judge of Israel. And that is the beginning of Samuel's call. And we'll get into the rest of his ministry in the following weeks. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to learn about you, to learn about your prophets and your history and the way that you have blessed and kept your word to your people. God, help us to understand what it means to be followers of you who are called to share the word who shouldn't be embarrassed by it, but confident because of it, because we have your word in its full capacity. And we know the truth, and we know the cure to the problem. Jesus is the cure to the sin problem. But help us to be bold and to be faithful and to do the hard things like Samuel did and share that knowledge with those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.